So I want you to imagine a full day of activity, a packed schedule. You complete your day. You did all the things you need to do. You checked all the boxes. You, if you have kids, you put the kids to bed. You're starting your evening routine where you wind down and you put your head on the pillow. And just before your eyes close, this thought comes running through your head. Where did I notice the hand of God in my life today? It's a great question for that time of the day, isn't it? Where did I notice God's love for me today? Where did I notice God's hand? And where did I receive God's love today in the midst of a crazy schedule? And where did I perhaps do things that rejected God's love today? Where did I see God's hand in my life? The hand of God is active in our lives, whether we see it or not, and to develop and cultivate habits that look to notice it's a wonderful thing. But the hand of God is stirring us day by day, month by month, week by week, moment by moment. And the hand of God is active to shape out things for his purpose that he has for us. But the hand of God isn't just shaping us and molding us and bringing out his will in our lives individually. The hand of God is active in the whole world. Shaping, moving, guiding. There's not anything that happens in the world that doesn't escape his hand or bring surprise or fret to who he is. He's shaping and using all things to get to his purpose intended end that we will see for his glory and his honor. The hand of God is active and moving. We're in a series looking at going through the book of Romans. It's a New Testament book in the Bible. And just by way of remembering, Paul is writing this letter to this church in Rome And in this church in Rome, it's kind of a complex thing because it's an early church, it's a newer church. Jesus rose from the dead and now his apostles are carrying out the Great Commission to make disciples and start churches. And in this particular church in this big city for the day, Rome, where the the seat of the Roman Empire is happening, something's going on. You have people who grew up Jewish And they followed the Jewish customs and the Jewish laws of the Old Testament. God promised things to the people of Israel. And and then they came and encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus. And they gave their life to Jesus. And they're trying to figure out how much of my relationship with God is all about this new thing, Jesus. And how much of it is the things I grew up with in the Jewish tradition. And where does that all fit? And there's just kind of this big mix On top of that, you have people who didn't grow up Jewish, who grew up kind of in a pagan, non-religious environment. They give their lives to Jesus. They want to follow Jesus. And now these two groups are in the same church. And it's kind of a mess. And Paul is bringing unity to these two groups, and he's doing it by showing them who they both are in Christ. And what he wants them to see is God's hand at work 
even in the confusion, even in the mess, even in the complexity, it's not a mess to God. He has everything orchestrated perfectly. And he's addressing the Jewish people in that church, and he just got done talking about how if they don't place their faith in Christ, if the Jewish people don't place their faith in Christ, they'll be lost eternally. Because Christ is what gives us our eternal hope. And that sparked a very important question to these people. The question is, if the Jewish people are God's chosen people, and God's promised covenant, God promised and covenanted to save them in the Old Testament times, why are you saying some won't be saved? Did God just reject his covenant people? And that's piquing their interest because Paul's also talking about a new covenant in Christ. And so they're thinking, well, if God blew off the old covenant, what's to say he's not going to do that with the new covenant? So this is a very important question to them. And, and Paul graciously, skillfully answers this question in three ways in Romans chapter 11. We saw the last week he answered it when they said, didn't God reject his people? He said, no. And you can prove that because God's alive in some Jewish people. We see that. This week in Romans chapter 11, 11 to 24, we're going to see the question again, did God reject Israel? And this time Paul says, no, the rejection you're seeing of the Jewish people is partial. It's not total. God did not blow off his people. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Romans chapter 11. Uh, we're going to look at verses 11 to 24. If you're using a Bible here in our worship center, I'll be on page 919. Today's passage has it all. Big, deep theological questions. Very intense, complex answers. Word pictures, analogies, truth. And we see throughout this chapter the sheer brilliance of the Apostle Paul, who is this humble, common, ordinary person, but also has a huge heart for God and has been gifted with such genius and intellect. And he has this huge heart of a good pastor. And as a good pastor, he wants to bring two main truths to this church. The first one he wants to bring is that Paul assures the Jewish Christians that neither he nor God has abandoned them. Neither he nor God has abandoned them. Look at verses 11 and 12. Again I ask, he's reiterating and kind of twisting a little bit the question from verse 1 of chapter 11, here in verse 11. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater will their full inclusion bring? Here we see the amazing hand of God on a human heart in both ethnic groups. God's hand is revealing his wisdom, his power, his sovereignty. And in verse 11, Paul reframes that question Verse 1, when, he says, when he's assuming their question, did God reject his people in total? The answer was no. Now the question is, is the rejection final? And the answer is no. He says that salvation has come to the Gentiles. 
these people that did not have the Jewish upbringing. And they came that way, he says, and this is really odd, in order to make the Jewish people jealous. God's hand is stirring to bring those that he chose, those he elected that we saw in chapter 9, to himself. He is saying that the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people is going to do two great actions. First, the gospel then is going to go to non-Jewish people, which is his plan, that all people, regardless of their ethnicity, all around the world, come to know who Jesus is and what he did for them by dying on the cross for them. So he says that's going to expand past the one ethnicity of the Jewish people. And second, when the Jewish people see that happening and they see the benefits of a relationship with God now residing in people who are Gentiles, it's going to cause them to be jealous. They're going to say, I want that. They're going to say, I need that. God's hand is stirring And he's saying, I haven't rejected my people, Israel. In fact, I'm doing something that's going to create a thirst in them, a jealousy in them. It goes back to an Old Testament verse in Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, where God says, I'm going to make my people a jealous people for me. Where they're going to leave all the things that distracted their hearts away from me and come back to me. A gospel jealousy. A gospel jealousy that says, I want the riches of Jesus Christ. No, I haven't rejected Israel. I want to cultivate in them this jealousy. And at the end of 12, when he talks about how great it's going to be to bring them into full inclusion, he's talking about they're going to be enjoying the fullness of the kingdom to come. Ethnic Israel's fall away from God does not mean they have no future hope. They can return. And so now Paul shifts in verses 13 to 14 and talks to the Gentile crowd of this church. Look at verse 13. I'm talking to you Gentiles in as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Here we see a display of Paul's true calling, that all people will know Jesus and be saved from their sin. He is hopeful that the spiritual richness that the Jewish people had as they grew and, and became older is seen in the Gentiles, And that they'll see the the relationship that God had with the Jewish people where he said, you will be my people, I will be your God. When they see that active in a Gentile, not by following Torah, but by following Jesus, the Jewish people will return and say, I want that. There's a power when people radiate the love and the blessing of God. There's a power when you see someone who's close to God, who's close to Jesus, who's walking out the Jesus lifestyle. And it creates this hunger and a thirst. And we see that and we say, I want that. I want to be more like that. 
Have you ever been around someone that loves God so much and you shake your head and you say, when I grow up, I want to be like that, like next week? When people live out a relationship with Jesus fully, it turns heads and hearts. There was a great preacher in the 1700s named George Whitfield. George Whitfield would preach up to 20 to 30,000 people. They said it was a, actually a miracle that his voice could be amplified to such crowds without any kind of technology that we have today. Many, many people came to Christ through the ministry of George Whitfield. He was part of what was called the Great Awakening, which was a revival that swept across the United States. He was full of the love of God. He radiated the love and grace and mercy of God. And there was a non-Christian man who lived in the day named Benjamin Franklin who loved to go hear George Whitfield preach. Benjamin Franklin was a deist, which means he, he believed there could be a God there, but that God would never interact with things in the world and had no control or a hand on anything in the world. He didn't believe the way George Whitfield believed in Jesus Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But he liked to go hear him preach. And one time, George Whitfield is getting ready to do a huge revival in Massachusetts and, and preach at this uh, evening worship service. And Ben Franklin was getting ready to go and see him. And one of Ben Franklin's friends say, why do you waste your time going and seeing this guy who believes in a God that you don't even believe in. He said, you don't believe in the God that George Whitfield is preaching. And Ben Franklin said, you're right, I don't. But George Whitfield believes in that God. And I want to see that. When we believe and we live our lives, it gives off this Holy Spirit attraction to the person of God. That's the hand of God in someone's life. Look at verse 15. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, talking about the Jewish people, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul is now showing this interlocking destinies between both the Jewish people who give their lives to Jesus Christ and the Gentiles who give their life to Jesus Christ. And the goal is to bring them both into Unity. He basically is saying this. The rejection of God by Israel resulted in God including the Gentiles, which is going to go back and result in God including Israel. The hand of God orchestrating all this, tied together. And the result, he says, will be life from the dead. What he's getting at here is there's two types of Jewish people. Back then and even today, there's two, this is a very oversimplification, but there's two types of Jewish people, Orthodox Jewish people who don't believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah, not followers of Jesus. Then there's Messianic Jewish people who are Jewish, but they believe Jesus is the Messiah, and they've given their lives to him. They are Christians. They will benefit in the gospel. 
And what Paul is saying here in verse 15, when he talks about it's going to be like life from the dead, is that when the Jewish people cross from the Orthodox who don't believe in Jesus to the ones who do believe in Jesus, it's going to be so powerful, it's going to be like another resurrection. God has not abandoned them. He's creating this gospel jealousy to lead them back to himself. So here's the principle I want you to think about for a second. Gospel flourishing leads to gospel jealousy. Gospel flourishing leads to gospel jealousy. When followers of Jesus Christ really understand the gospel, and we really understand that the lies that we are no good, that we have to prove ourselves, that we have to, uh, that we'll be condemned, that God doesn't love us. When we reject those lies and step into the truth that we've been saved by grace, we have been made new, we are a new creation, we are brought into relationship with God. When we walk fully in those truths of what the gospel is, our lives begin to flourish. Not only do our lives begin to flourish, but everywhere we go, we give off, as it says in Corinthians, this aroma of Christ. It creates a jealousy amongst those who open up the apps on their phone and see nothing but hopelessness and have no idea where to go. But that person does. What's up with that person? Gospel flourishing leads to gospel Jealousy, that's the goal of being a Christian and worshiping in the church. When Christians live out their true identities as followers of Jesus and no longer live under the lies they tell themselves or the lies they pick up from the world, the flourishing that comes brings them into a gospel wholeness that gives glory to God and lasts for eternity. It's gospel transformation. And... When people who are living, who don't know Jesus, see that, it creates a longing, a wondering, a perplexing, a, if you will, jealousy. When Christians live their lives empowered with love and a holiness that isn't empowered by a self-determined will, or a strength of their own. But they live a holy life because they realize how much God loves me, how much God forgave me, how much God brings me into his presence because of his son Jesus. And he loves me that much? And he forgives me? And he went to the cross? And he paid the penalty of my sin? And he invites me to be with him forever and ever? Even when you look at all the horrible things I've done, he still did that? That's amazing. That wants me to live a holy life. That wants me to say, God, I want to live for you and be done with the ways of this world. A love that amazing, a love that divine demands my soul, my life, and my all. That's gospel-empowered holiness. When we live that way, it brings about a jealousy. When we come in here to worship together and we join with one voice, expressing our thanks, our gratitude, our joy, and our love for God in song, 
it not only nourishes us as followers of Jesus, but to those who come in and are just checking things out, it piques their interest. It says, what's going on with these people? What they have, I want. Which leads to the question, what do they have? There's a hunger, a thirst, a desire. When we open up God's word together and the Bible is taught, it displays that Jesus is so amazing, so sufficient, so powerful, so soul-satisfying that it causes those who believe to grab onto him even stronger and those who are wondering what this God stuff's all about, it creates a hunger, a thirst. Gospel flourishing leads to gospel jealousy. The greater the degree that followers of Jesus live out the gospel and a gospel-empowered life that leads to obedience and wholeness, the more different they're going to look in the world and the more attractive spiritually they will be. This restaurant that uh, was very popular in my hometown growing up, one of the things that they would do is you would come and you'd get your table, and the minute you sat down at your table, the hostess who's bringing you to the table, you'd sit down and they'd bring you this huge bowl of popcorn. No matter what. It didn't matter if you're going to just have something to drink or if you're going to order food. Uh, you, well, the minute you got to the table, you got this huge bowl of popcorn. And it was the saltiest popcorn you ever had in your life. And you just get there and you just devour it. And all of a sudden a bowl's gone. I remember my, one of my friends said, bring three bowls you know, right away. I don't want to wait. And people said, isn't that cool? They give you popcorn. But some of you know where this is going. You know why they give you salty popcorn. Because then you'll have to buy drink after drink after drink because you're so thirsty because you ate all this popcorn. And they make money on that. When a follower of Jesus Christ lives the Christian life, with the power and grace and love of God in their heart emanating out, it creates a thirst. A thirst that can only be quenched by one thing. Sometimes in the beginning, we are the only Bibles people read. When the church is a collective whole, as one sent into the community of Wisconsin Rapids and its surrounding area, Live out the presence and the power of Jesus. It creates a gospel hunger in our city. It creates a gospel thirst in our city. It creates a gospel jealousy in our city. That's why we talk about here at Crossview Church, leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus. That's what we're about. And we need to live in a way that invites people to such a great cause. Because that's the only way you can live with meaning in today's world. That's the only way this crazy world makes sense. Is that when you live it through the power of the gospel in relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you live that way, not only is your life changed in the here and now, but you have an eternal hope 
that when this life is done and you stand before God, you are brought into heaven and you have eternal life with him forever and ever and ever because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Not because of what you did, but because of what he did. And you have that assurance that when you die, you'll spend eternity in heaven, not eternity separated from God forever, which is the most scariest place a human soul can experience. Now Paul makes a shift from focusing on the Jewish group to the Gentile group. And as a good pastor, he brings out his second point, which is that Paul wants to warn the Gentiles to avoid arrogance and pride. And he does this by using two word pictures. The first one he uses is bread, and the second one he uses is botany. He's taken the idea that Jews and Gentiles who are following Jesus have the same eternal destiny, worshiping the throne of God and being part of his kingdom forever, and he's encouraging them to live that way now. And he's saying you were meant to do life together, and you share together in the glorious riches of Jesus. Look at verse 16. If the part of the dough is offered as first fruits, it is holy. Then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul says, hey Gentiles, these Jewish people who are coming to faith in Christ, they're the first fruits of an amazing harvest of many people coming to Jesus. God hasn't rejected his people. Hey Gentiles, or hey, hey Jewish people, you see these Gentiles come into faith in Christ. They're the first fruits of what's going to happen. He continues on to the second word picture. Look at verse 17 and 18. If some of the branches have been broken off in you, though a wild olive shoot, referring to the Gentiles, I'll explain why in a second, have been grafted in among the others, the Jewish people, I'll explain in a second, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Here's what he's saying. There's two types of olive trees. There's a wild olive tree that grows like a weed. And then there's a cultivated olive tree that is cared for, intentionally fertilized, that's washed over. The olives that come from the weed, the wild olive root, are terrible. You can't use them. The olives that come from an intentional cultivated olive tree are amazing. And what he's doing is he's saying, Gentiles, you're kind of like that wild olive tree that just grows. The cultivated olive tree is kind of like the Jewish people, that God nurtured them from the Old Testament ways. And now in Christ, the wild olive branch gets fused in to the promises of God that he had for his people long ago. He's using this analogy not to say that one race is more superior than another. He's using this analogy to show spiritual heritage that is now given to all ethnicities because of Jesus Christ. The promises of God that came to the Old Testament people now get applied to anyone who places their faith in Christ alone. And they're grafted in, not because of their own goodness 
or their own attempt at righteous living. They're grafted in because of the work of Jesus Christ. So don't be arrogant. Jesus did it, not you. One of the things that Paul wants them to catch in his brilliance here is that no one would really do this in natural life. No one would ever, in the wildest dreams, if you're an agricultural person, would take a wild weed and engraft it into a plant that you've cultivated and cared for. He's showing this is supernatural. He's showing that this is a God thing. This bringing people to faith in Christ is a work of God, not of human hands. This grafting is supernatural, not of human effort. Look at verses 19 and 20. You will say then branches were broken off. Referring to Jewish people that walked away from God. So that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. Don't think that because you're in Christ and someone left, that it's all because of what you did. Be thankful for the grace of God. Gentiles might say the chosen people of Israel chose to leave God. They broke the branch, and Paul reminds them, yes, but you are here because of not something you did, but because of what Jesus did. So don't be arrogant. The fact that you are saved from the penalty of your sin, the fact that you are forgiven and brought into the family of God, the fact that you were reconciled into a relationship with God is because of God, not because of you. So worship. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. A warning that God treats all who do not believe the same exact way. Eternal conscious punishment. Spiritual pride blinds people to the very thing they need. Salvation, grace, love, forgiveness, life with purpose. Then Paul makes an amazing statement about what God is like. Look at verse 22. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. You must keep walking in grace. Otherwise, you will be cut off. We experience the kindness of God and the sternness of God depending on where our heart is. He does both. And in this case, he's looking at future forward eternity when Christ comes. And he says, all those who follow me have paradise and eternal life forever. All those that don't have eternal conscious punishment. You see kindness and sternness. It should sober us. God is holy. Gentile believers, which are you and me, should never be arrogant. But like all those who follow Christ, we should continue to live out our relationship with God in faithfulness to him. Gospel-empowered holiness. Paul now goes back to the answer, did God reject his people Israel? No. Look at verse 23. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God is able to graft them into that plant again. 
Israel will be saved if they do not continue to live out their unbelief about Jesus. If they believe Jesus, they will be saved. Then Paul stresses that this is because of the power of God. God did this. Our sovereign God can open blind eyes. Our sovereign God can soften hard hearts. And when he opens our eyes of our heart and softens our heart, we hear the gospel, then we respond. We either reject Jesus or we turn and trust and follow Jesus. We repent. We turn. We believe. Not just an intellectual belief, with our whole life. We say, you are who you say you are. I trust in you to deliver my salvation. And we follow. We say every day here forward, you are my king. You sit on the throne of my heart. And Paul goes back with that statement to the olive tree example in our last verse in 24. After all, if you were cut off of an olive tree that is wild by nature and grafted in to nature and contrary to nature and were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree as well? He's saying if Gentile people can be saved and grafted in, Jewish people who were in and left can easily be grafted in again. God has not rejected his people. So what does this mean for us? What does this complex situation in this first century church have anything to do with us in 2023? I want to give a couple of thoughts. First of all, God loves us and he alone saves us. Spiritually speaking, no matter what our ethnicity is, all human beings are naturally spiritually dead and they have to be alive and wakened and brought to life by God. Some people liken starting a relationship with God to being drowning in a sea and someone tosses you a life ring and you swim to the life ring and you grab it. That's a bad analogy. A better analogy is you were sinking. You were under the water. You were drowned. You were dead. And God chose, he elected in his sovereign hand to go down and pull you out and save you. To make your eyes open, to soften your heart, to make it so you could understand the gospel. We call that regeneration. And then you respond. Number two, all followers of Jesus should seek to live in humble gospel flourishing that leads to gospel jealousy. So many times as Christians, we are tempted to live just like non-Christians. We buy into a lie and a false way of living and all of a sudden the seed of that lie hosts into a lifestyle. Author Brian Tabb writes this, Many believe that humanity's greatest need is effective leadership, more resources, better health care, improved education, greater cooperation, or better self-esteem. Such solutions assume that our Fundamental problems are ineffective governance, poverty, disease, ignorance, intolerance, or depression. And as bad as those are, Paul offers an important insight into humanity's greatest plight. 
and the full-orbed gospel solution. The Bible offers a devastating diagnosis to the plight of humanity, and here it is. People have willfully and repeatedly rebelled against God. They broke his law and worshiped created things more than the glorious creator. Humans revel in their freedom to live as they choose, but don't realize that such freedom is in fact bondage and will ultimately lead to ruin. The gospel of Jesus Christ alone and Jesus alone is the only comprehensive solution to our desperate condition. The world offers counterfeits to true gospel flourishing. And it's so tempting for us to buy into the counterfeit. There are three main arenas the counterfeits come. The first one is pleasure. The world says, seek out all the pleasure you want. It will satisfy you. And it comes in many different forms. Materialism. Sex outside the context of a one-man, one-woman marriage. Experiences. The world says anything goes. Give in to every desire. You see fit. Practice whatever you want. And ultimately it leads to ruin and devastation. God gives pleasures to be used in the boundaries he gives. But they lead to something greater than pleasure itself. They lead to soul fulfillment. Especially relationally, it leads to intimacy with God and human beings. Intimacy is being fully known without fear of rejection. And it satisfies the human soul in a way that worldly pleasure can't. And people look for that place where they can be fully known without rejection, but they're using the world's ways of doing it, and it'll never, ever lead them there. God's ways are better. We gain something even greater when we live a gospel-flourishing life. Second, identity. The same is true when it comes to our identity. The world tells us, promote yourself, chase your status, Show everyone how great you are. Get noticed. Because when others approve of you, when others esteem you, that is the best life. But if that's all you have, you have devastation. Gospel flourishing says, no, your identity is found in the fact that God chose you, that God calls you as his child. That God says, I love you. And I don't just love you, I like you. And I don't just like you, I want to be with you. I want you to notice my presence and I want to empower you to live this life. I love you so much, I sing songs about you, it says in Zephaniah 3.17. And your identity is one who's loved by God. And when you understand that, that is true life. And you are set free from the bondage of chasing other people's opinions and approval about you. It doesn't matter because you know who you are in the sight of your maker. The world's lies lead you to bondage. Gospel flourishing leads you to freedom and fulfillment. And finally, purpose. The world says you decide your destiny. You could be whatever you want to be. Do whatever you want to do. 
Jesus said, true life is found when you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow me. And when you live out gospel-centered obedience, gospel-empowered holiness, and not take the world's advice, you find your true life. You find your true purpose. The purpose of a thing is found in the creator of the thing, not in the creation. The purpose of the thing is found in the creator, not in the creation. And so when you know your creator, you find your purpose. There's a better way to live. So what's in your soul that the gospel should run a sword through this morning? Are you searching for pleasure, identity, and meaning contrary to the way that God wants? Are you trying to write the story of your life intentionally or unintentionally for your own glory? Are there areas of habitual sin in your life that you have yet to attack with God's love and grace and power? We try and try and try and we think the best answer to our bad behavior is to be good in our own strength. The best answer is to come to Jesus. It's the only answer. There's a better way to live It's a gospel-flourishing life. Come, be broken, lean into Jesus. And if you've never experienced this before, you turn from your sinful ways and repent. Repent means to turn. You say, God, I want to turn from living where I'm calling the shots, and I want you to call the shots. You trust, you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he died on the cross for you, and you transfer the ownership of your life over to him. And you follow You say, you are the king of my life. Some of you have done that, and you've wandered. Some of you have done that, and you're buying into temptation now. You're listening to a voice that says, Jesus isn't all that. Look at what the world can give. May the cross of Jesus be between you and that lie right now. Come back to Jesus. Find true life. Let's play. Father in heaven, I thank you that this messy church in the first century Rome that you instruct through your apostle so shows where we live today. And it shows your wisdom and your glory and your power. And so God, I ask that would you come and conquer our hearts from our stubborn pride? And would you show us again your grace and your love and your truth? Silence the lies that say there's a better way to live outside of Jesus Christ. Let us taste and see that you are good. Lord, where there are people who can hear this prayer, who've never tasted the goodness of God, let that happen by your spirit right now. 
We receive your goodness. We receive your wisdom. We receive your power. We receive your strength. We want to be your people. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. We accept your invitation this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.